and I believe that there will be blessing all around. So don't be sorrowful. Yeah, sure, we're going to miss these guys because we won't be actually able to see them, as it were, face-to-face physically on a, on a regular basis. But, you know, I believe God has already shown us that he is going to bless us. And he's, he's, or he's dedicated himself, as it were, to um, being a full-time blesser. And, uh, you know, we're, we're fully anticipating blessing all around. It really is an exciting time. And, um, you know, I, I do really believe that God uses business in many, many different ways. Some businesses God has specifically assigned to support the work of the local church, but some businesses I believe God has specifically assigned a role in the development of technology. And if you have a look at the the overarching history of humanity, you'll see that human beings have reacted to changes in their access to resources actually in three ways. One is the development of technology. Another is trade, and that goes all the way back to pre-biblical times, as a matter of fact. And the other one is population control. And, um, you know, I, I believe God's heart actually is for us to deal with the resource issue through technology and through trade, not through population control. And so, you know, I, I see that there's a deep theological significance in what's happening here. And, you know, we're, we're just so so blessed that we're going along for the ride, so to speak. And, um, yeah, we have thought about the idea of setting up Ignite Life Church Seattle. <laughs> so, you know, they might not get let off the hook so easily. <laughs> Tomorrow I reckon she might go over there. Gee, we'll be in a lot of trouble then. <laughs> let me tell you, if I do all the admin around here, things, <laughs> things won't work as smoothly as they have. So, um, yeah, do be praying for these guys because, believe you me, they've got a lot of things to do um, over the next little while. And, and as they mentioned, there's no definite date for this because they have to hang around, basically, until the US consulates decide to um, hold interviews. And uh, that who knows when that will be. So just pray for them. It is a very busy time um, for them. And I pray for the church as well, because they'll leave a big hole, won't they? Uh, not just in terms of what they did uh, work-wise, but we're just going to miss them because we love them, eh? So praise the Lord. Okay, let's move on. And uh, as I said before, I've got a clock in front of me here, so I, need, I do need to be careful. What I want to do is to continue with our, our discussion about the, uh, the rapture. And uh, I just want to focus today on the abomination of desolation, which is something that I, I had said I would do last week, but we ran out of time. And so today, that's all I want to focus on, this um, idea of the abomination of desolation, which is a, a translation that's a translation from, from the Greek. And essentially what it means is um, totally destroying, in this case, the temple of God and then putting in the place of worship of God, worship of other gods, worship of idols. That's what it's all about. And uh, we, we'll, we'll, we'll see that there have been at least two times in the history of Israel when the temple has been totally destroyed and there's been this abomination of idol worship 
in the temple. So we can move on to the next slide. Thank you very much. Tamara has been doing an absolutely brilliant job here because uh, she monitors everything to make sure that your screens don't freeze. And um, it's quite a job. So I'm very grateful for that. Anyway, let me talk a little bit about this so-called abomination of desolation. The first time that we see it referred to in the Bible is in uh, the book of Daniel. And it appears a number of times. You'll find it in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11. So it goes a long, long way back in terms of the biblical text. And we see there was, in a sense, an initial fulfillment of this prophecy about 170 years before Jesus was born. There was a Syrian uh, leader by the name of Antiochus uh, Epiphanes. Now, Epiphanes wasn't his, his real name. He took that name as, as rulers often did. And it actually, the, the, the word Epiphanes actually means revelation of God. So he saw himself as something of a God. He was a wicked man and his regime was a very cruel regime. But a little while before 170 BC, he made a covenant with a bunch of Jews who had kind of repudiated their faith, what we call apostate Jews. Then he captured Jerusalem in 170 BC. He plundered the temple. He set it ablaze. He stripped it of all its precious vessels. And those vessels, of course, were often inlaid with precious metals like gold. I don't know how that happened. That's my, um, oh my goodness. Just, <laughs> that's, um, I've, I've actually got a male voice for Siri. I got sick of hearing a woman going on all, at me all the time. So I, if you don't know, you can actually change that voice. You can get a bloke's voice. <laughs> so I've got a bloke's voice now. Now I have no idea why Siri suddenly decided to wake up and um, don't know anything about that rapper bloke. <laughs> so I don't know how But anyway, so this um, Antiochus Epiphanes, he plundered the temple, set it ablaze, stripped it of all his precious, precious vessels. And in 167 BC, he caused all sacrifices to cease. Soon after that, he set up an image of Zeus Olympius, a god who was not our god in the temple. And that is referred to as an abomination of desolation. The desolation is the destruction of the temple and the abomination is the worship of an idol, the worship of a God who is not the one true living God. So there's a, a fulfillment of that scripture, but often with these Old Testament prophecies, there's a fulfillment in more than one way. In a sense, there's different phases or different types of fulfillment. Jesus uh, confirmed the prophecy of Daniel in Matthew 24, verses 15 to 22. This is what he says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration or the abomination of desolation. Uh, 
standing in the holy place. Now that's quoting Jesus. And then Matthew, who writes the gospel, he says this in parentheses, reader, pay attention. In other words, this is important, so listen up. Jesus goes on to say, then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen, one, chosen ones. And uh, not all that long after Jesus said this, in AD 70, to be exact, the temple was destroyed again. This time, not by Assyrian, but by the Roman Emperor Titus. And, you know, he behaved in a fairly similar manner to Antiochus Epiphanes over 200 years before him. The, the Romans destroyed the temple. They brought their military standards, which were eagles. They brought those eagles into the holy precincts. They offered sacrifices to them. And they saluted Titus as imperator. Now, that's a big flash word. Not easy to, um, to, to give it another translation, but it, it roughly means ruler, a supreme ruler. Later, a little later on, a statue of the Emperor Titus was erected on the desolated site of the temple. The Roman Emperor had assumed the place of God. Now, there are some theologians and some, some Christians, some doctrine that says that was the final fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. And uh, people who believe that, they're given the, the, the term um, praetorists. Uh, praetor, I think it's a Latin word. It actually means done or accomplished in the past. And so there are, there are a significant number of theologians and, and Christians who actually believe that the complete fulfillment of that prophecy by Daniel occurred in 70 AD. But there are many others, of course, who believe something different. And the writer who we've been following most closely over these last few weeks Rodman Williams, who wrote a very detailed um, systematic theology, he argues something different. And uh, again, many Christians, many denominations would agree with him that there's a third fulfillment of that prophecy in Daniel, which is a future fulfillment. So we can move on to the next slide, if you like there. Thank you very much. It's... Um, it's gone to sleep again, of course. But anyway, that's okay. Thank you very much, Tamara. So we've actually talked a little bit about this already. We've previously discussed the idea of the seven-year period of tribulation. The abomination of desolation happens 
halfway through that period, uh, which is halfway through Daniel's 70th week, in which each day is interpreted as a year, or some people interpret it as a relatively short period of time rather than a literal period of 365 days. Now, what, what, what's happening, and we have talked about this a little bit um, quite some months ago now, but there's an agreement between Israel and an Antichrist that brings peace to Israel that allows the reconstruction of the temple and worship in the temple. But halfway through this seven-year period, the three-and-a-half-year period, which the Bible sometimes calls a, um, a time, times and a half time, which is uh, three and a half years, if you read that expression in some translations. But at that point, the man of sin, in sometimes called the Antichrist rather than an Antichrist, basically tears up that covenantal agreement and then disallows worship in the temple and sets himself up as the God to be worshipped. I want to just point out that Rodman Williams talks about similarities between the two beasts, and we've talked about the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land. There are similarities between these two beasts and the man of sin who causes the temple sacrifices to cease. The first beast is secular in nature. The second is religious in nature. And let me tell you, in my own Christian walk, I have found more opposition from other Christians than I have from people who are not Christians at all. Now, Rodman Williams argues that the man of sin is a composite of those two beasts. He is not Satan, but is the instrument of Satan. And the beast has the number of man. Rodman Williams comes to the conclusion that the man of sin and the beasts are actually an image of humankind in final revolt against God and exaltation of humankind as God. Exaltation of humankind as God. During this period, persecution of Christians increases. There will be a massive effort to end all Christian worship and testimony. This will be Satan's final attempt to erase every trace of Christian witness from the earth. The attack will no longer be only on the temple or Jerusalem, but on all God's people. Martyrdom will be common. There's a description of the man of sin in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, most of the chapter focuses on the man of sin, but verse 8 and 25 are particularly pertinent. Now, verse 8 says, As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. That's the focus on humankind as God, boasting arrogantly. 
Verse 25, he will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws, and they will be placed under his control for a time, times, and a half time. That's the latter three and a half years of the seven-year period of tribulation. Now, I want to kind of, in a sense, take a slightly step, a slight step sideways. Um, I'm departing here from the discussion of Rodman Williams and indeed many other theologians who have talked about post-tribulation rapture. But I, I want to talk a little bit about the exhortation of humankind as God. And look, there is a thread of this that runs all the way through the Bible. And over the last few years, I've been especially, I guess, impacted by uh, chapters 26 through to 29 of Ezekiel. And I'm just going to read a few verses out of Ezekiel chapter 28. I also want to refer to Revelation chapter 18, which talks about the fall of, of Babylon. And I have referred to this a few weeks ago, you might recall. But these passages actually talk about a social and economic system which actually focuses on humankind as the center of all creation, not the God whom we know as the God who created us and indeed the whole universe. So in chapter 28, I'm just going to read the first uh, five verses. But if you read around those chapters in the book of Ezekiel, you'll, you'll get a really good feel for what's going on in the heart of humankind. Then this message came to me, that's to Ezekiel from the Lord, son of man, give the prince of Tyre this message from the sovereign Lord. In your great pride, you claim, I am a God. I sit on a divine throne in the heart of the sea. And this is Ezekiel speaking now, but you are only a man and not a God, though you boast that you are a God. You regard yourself as wiser than Daniel and think no secret is hidden from you. With your wisdom and understanding, you have amassed great wealth, gold and silver for your treasuries. Yes, your wisdom has made you very rich and your riches have made you very proud. Not have made you very grateful for the blessings of God. You see the difference there? Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 to 19. I won't read all the verses out uh, for the purposes of brevity. But here we read, After all this I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority, and the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout, Babylon is fallen, the great city is fallen. She has become a home for demons. She is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture and every foul and dreadful animal. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her. Because of her desires for extravagant luxury, the merchants of the world have grown rich. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven. Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. 
for his sins are piled as high as heaven. And God remembers her evil deeds. I'm skipping a few verses now to go to verse 9. And the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. They will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for you, O Babylon, your great city. In a single moment, God's judgment came upon you. The merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. She bought great quantities of gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, things made of fragrant thyan wood, ivory goods and objects made of expensive wood and bronze, iron and marble. She also bought cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, wagons, and bodies. That is human slaves. The fancy things you loved so much are gone, they cry. All your luxuries and splendor are gone forever, never to be yours again. The merchants who became wealthy by selling her these things will stand at a distance, terrified by her great torment. They will weep and cry out, reading on a little bit further down, and all the captains of the merchant ships and their passengers and sailors and crews will stand at a distance. They will cry out as they watch the smoke ascend, and they will say, where is there another city as great as this? And they will weep and throw dust on their heads to show their grief. And they will cry out, how terrible, how terrible for that great city. The ship owners became wealthy by transporting her great wealth on the seas. In a single moment, it is all gone. This is a picture of the utter depravity of selfish, self-centered humankind. And if you want to see the opposite of that, you have to look at the kingdom of Solomon. That's basically how long ago in history you have to look back to find a society in which God was honored and the people prospered. What's happened now, of course, is we've fallen into the great trap that God foreshadowed when he said to Israel, you know, when you get into the land I am giving you, don't forget it is I who give your arm strength to get wealth. See, what's happened, of course, is our societies today have forgotten that it is God who gives us strength in our arms to get wealth. You know, it's God who gives us the witty inventions that we were talking about a little earlier in relation to David's work. You know, it's God whom we should exalt, not ourselves. We, we exalt ourselves because we think, we're so smart, that we're intelligent, that we've kind of evolved from this mass of amoebic, whatever you want to call them, these little single-celled um, uh, animals, flora, fauna, whatever you want to call it, that, that somehow, you know, we have made wonderful achievements and we've become almost totally wrapped up in worldly possessions. Our whole economic system is actually based on the exploitation of resources, including people, in order to satisfy what economists describe as an insatiable desire for goods and services. And it brings so much misery. God has another way, but it seems that so many are choosing to turn their back. And so Rodman Williams says, 
the man and the, and the beast, the man of sin and the beast that are talked about in the book of Revelation represent humankind in this final massive result, uh, revolt against God. And sometimes it becomes very obvious to us when we see people marching in the street and, and looting businesses, and when we see uh, people murdered because others feel angry or somehow insulted. But it can also be a lot more subtle than that. As secular humanism creeps into all of our institutions, including the formal organized church. You know, after the global financial crisis erupted late in 2008 and into 2009, you might recall that there were lots of demonstrations in the streets of cities in many countries of the world. It was the so-called Occupy movement. There were angry people. And the, the main call there was to overthrow the economic system. And although I, I clearly have some sympathy with that, because I don't think the Babylonian economic system has delivered to many, many people. And it has led to a great deal of exploitation. But well, we had these thousands of people in cities around the world who believed that their cause was more important than the rule of law, was more important than the causes that other people espoused. At the risk of perhaps being a bit controversial, I see the massive demonstrations in many cities of the world, including Brisbane yesterday, in the name of the Black Lives Matter global movement. It's another expression like the official website for that organization. You will see that they stand for a lot of things other than protest against the way in which they perceive the black people are treated by the police and authorities in the United States and other parts of the world. You know, we can, we can rant about them, and I guess I've done my share on social media. But I think it's worth considering why is it? Why is it that this has happened? I'd like to suggest that it's a reaction of people to the Babylonian system. You see, most of these people who end up on the streets protesting are really not participating in the vibrant, prosperous social and economic system. I don't want to sound arrogant, but I do believe that if these people could only turn to the word of God, they might, in fact, find something far more fulfilling than taking their protest to the streets. Because God does have 
another way. But as we look at the book of Revelation, I believe that it shows to us that humanity is not going to take the other way, by and large. His people will. And, and in fact, there are people on earth today who are devoting their lives to reforming the Babylonian economic system. And I've mentioned to you my friend Dave Hodgson before, who's established the All Shall Prosper movement and uh, has established the Kingdom Investors uh, movement, which is not really about investing at all, but it's about establishing what he calls a sheep nation, which is actually a whole economic and social system which is based on the way in which Solomon uh, organised economic and social relations in stark contrast to the king of Tyre and to Babylon. So we have answers as a church and I think we have a responsibility to do what we can to let people know that there is a solution. But I think we also need to understand that God knows what human history holds. And in the book of Revelation, we see that there will indeed be a period of tribulation. That Israel will feature in that period, and so too will all those who are Christians on earth at the time. Now, you might want me to go on. I won't ask for a show of hands. But I really think it's just about time for us to, to draw to a close. We will continue at least for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> we might take a little break and address something else in the meantime, but we will continue with our discussion of end times and, and rapture over the next um, couple of weeks. I do trust that you are finding this perhaps not enjoyable, but enlightening, and that you're now having a look for yourself at the book of Revelation and coming to a conclusion about how you feel about the tribulation and in particular about the timing and the nature of the rapture of the church. So we might draw it to a close there.